Welcome back to Scrubs in the Trenches. This is Isaac Benjamin once again, and today I have a very special guest that I'd like to introduce. Miss um, Robin Elliott is one of the co-founders of the Georgia Overdose Prevention Program, and I'm very pleased to have her on the show. So I will introduce her now, and thank you, Robin, for being on the show. How are you doing today? Good, Isaac. Thank you for having me. All right. Um, as you said, my name is Robin Elliott. I'm one of the co-founders of Georgia Overdose Prevention. We are a grassroots group of people that came together back in 2012, um, really with the, the the hope of getting a law passed in the state of Georgia. And we really came together as a result of our own personal circumstances. Yeah. And um, so you actually know my friend Barbara Pruitt, who's been on the show several times and kind of helped start. Uh, it's kind of like it turned into a docu-series or mini <laughs> mini documentary with the uh, opioid pan- or epidemic. But um, there's a lot of stuff to cover with this. And I was very glad that she brought you on the show and uh is did you meet her through this program this i met her actually through a com a common friend my son um zach who was um you know a a a great kid um died of an opiate overdose on may 1st 2011 and a really close friend of mine knew barbara because they were neighbors and barbara had lost her daughter and when you lose a child to overdose, it's a very lonely place to be. Yeah. I mean, it really is because you don't talk to a lot of people and it's there's so much stigma and shame and guilt associated with it that my friend Ann introduced us and that was really a blessing. Yeah, on a previous episode, uh, Barbara said, it's like, oh, how'd your daughter die? And then it's like when she said overdose, it was like, oh. Yeah. And like it kind of changed the tone of conversation, it which does. isn't really fair because you've lost your child regardless of how it happened. So exactly, um, it's good that these groups have kind of blossomed up for parents to kind of get together because like you said, there's no really other experience. Like you can't relate with somebody unless they've lost a child or, you know, a child, you know, someone they raised as a child or something like that. So absolutely agree. So, um, we, when we met, there, there were a few other people that were also, we, we sort of just, the group sort of just, mushroomed a little bit you know we just gradually met more and more people that had lost their children because the more vocal you become the more other people are willing to speak up as well well. yeah it's almost like a beacon light because it's like you know this person holding this you know tragedy inside but then they see like oh this person's brave enough to talk about it and then when you do talk about these things it helps heal you yourself and so once you start healing it's almost impossible to turn backwards from that and be like oh i want to go back to that dark hole it's true and for me um my husband had passed away my zach's father my husband had died when zach was four and i have no other children so i didn't really have to ask permission of anybody else to say you know because i think some people feel like they're either their children don't really want this out in public or their spouse may not so they kind of have to work through that as well before they really can everybody has to be ready on Bef- board. exactly, exactly yeah. but for me it was just me so i didn't have to ask permission and when i finally decided to move forward and and become more vocal about it um it was it was really the, it really saved my life yeah and about how long did that take um from the time that he passed till like you were like okay i'm I need this. Well, or... what happened, it really was like I fell into it. It wasn't like, it wasn't really like, oh, I'm going to be so brave and come forward. You know, um, when Zach died in May and the very next day after he died, I picked up the newspaper. I mean, not after he died, after we buried him, I picked up the newspaper in Atlanta and the front page article on the living section was 
three kids had died in Milton, Georgia of heroin overdoses. And as I said, it was such a lonely place to be that, I mean, I wasn't, certainly wasn't happy about that, but I thought it just made me feel less alone or yeah. something. Do you know what I mean? So I, so I wrote an email to the um, reporter and I've never done that in my life. And she wrote back to me and that's kind of how the dominoes started falling because then she invited me to go down to the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition, which I had never heard of harm reduction. Yeah. My son was using, I mean, it would have been so helpful if I had heard of harm reduction, but I didn't know anything about it because nobody was talking about it. Um, so then I went there and then those people got me involved in trying to get the law passed. So it was really like dominoes falling. And as it happened, I just started talking. Yeah. And it is amazing how the universe sometimes, I mean, they put these signs in your path and sometimes it's almost impossible to ignore it. It's like, all right, this, you know, I mean, and this is completely off talk of it, topic, but we got a dog over Thanksgiving, which we didn't want a dog, but it was like, her name was Athena. She was in Nashville. We were going an hour away from Nashville for Thanksgiving already. Like there was just so many things. There it was signs all, signs all over yeah. that it was like, well, I can't not drive one more hour to get this dog. Yeah. And, and she's been perfect for our family. But like I said, totally off subject, but just kind it's of true. That's it, kind of what the way I feel like it happened. It just felt like this was supposed to take place. So, and sometimes it's almost harder to not walk that path than to walk that path. I think if I had not walked that path, I would have regretted it the rest of my life. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I really would have just regretted that the, whole, the rest of my life. So yeah. it has given it has given me, and that's really uh, as I when I tell this, sometimes I tell people, you know, the reason that I decided to go say yes to going to the Atlanta Harm and then said yes to trying to get the law passed was I would literally. I mean, I have a job. So I don't mean it like that, but I was literally looking for a reason to get out of bed every day. Yeah. My child had died. I felt like I had no, I really had no, my life had no meaning anymore. So I was trying to find some kind of a purpose. Yeah. And that's how I got here. <laughs> yeah. So, and I would like to talk a little more about how those dominoes kind of fell into place. So you, you, you know, responded back to this reporter. Um, when in this timeline, after you saw the reporter, did you start? with your co-founders start growing? Um. Yeah. So what happened was in, so Zach died in May, the, I, the reporter called me back in August and then the fall and we went to Atlanta harm then. And then the following year, like a year after Zach died, I got a call from somebody at Atlanta harm and they said, you know, a couple of this, this married couple, Jeremy Galloway and Tori Burt, Tori uh, Miller had just walked in. Tori Burt, I was going to say Tori Miller had just walked in and they had lost a friend of theirs to overdose and they wanted to try to get a good Samaritan law passed in Georgia. And she said, I thought of you and thought you might be interested in helping. Well, I mean, I had never stepped foot in the Capitol. I mean, I had no idea how to get a law passed. I didn't know. I, I mean, literally. Nothing. It's like, where's the button for a, exactly. a new law? Like, what do Where? we do? How do can you give me, like, can I ways how to get to the Capitol? Because I don't even know what to do. So anyway, we started this little small group of four people, grew to six people with Lori, who's really my co-founder, and she does the bulk of the work for Georgia Overdose, uh, joined with her friend Susan, who had lost somebody. And then we started finding other people that were kind of thinking about working on it and that had lost friends and family. And we started meeting with them. And the next thing you knew, we were a big group. And, um, and did y'all have to find like a lawyer to kind of help y'all navigate this or well, did y'all? <laughs> that's really, this is a really funny part of the dominoes actually was we were sitting around and somebody had said to me, somebody that worked as an aide in the legislature, they said, you have the first thing you have to do is you have to get a sponsor in the legislature. And they said, and it should be a Republican. <laughs> And the reason is because the Democrats are going to be easy to get on board on this subject. But uh, the Republicans so are going to say, no way, it's enabling, not going to do it. Not yeah. going. But if you get a Republican sponsor, that Republican sponsor can help grease the wheels with the other Republicans. So we're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny how so much in our 
world society is just political like that. Who where knew? It, yeah. I mean, I would never have thought of that, but that's like I said, I, you know, we it didn't makes know sense though. Yeah. So, um, so the next thing we knew, um, we were trying to, th- we were throwing names around, throwing names around. And Lori said, how about my legislator? She said, she's a nurse. She's the chairperson of the Health and Human Services Committee, which is the committee that this law would have to go through. She, I live in her district, and she's a Republican. And her name is Sharon Cooper. And we were like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a winner, right? Yeah, exactly. Another one of those signs from the universe. like uh, Exactly. And so then my son, one of my son's lifelong best friends, um, who they kind of went divert, you know, their paths diverged when my son started using, but um, they were friends right until Zach was 16. And... They were they were still friends always, but I mean they were still they weren't very, as close. Yeah, yeah they, they, they kind of went separate paths, but they still like really loved each other. Absolutely, exactly. So I knew that he was a first year law student, and I'd heard I knew his parents. I'd known him since he was five years old. I'd heard through some other friends that he was doing an internship at the Capitol. So I thought I'm just going to call Justin Leaf. He went to Georgia here in Athens, and um, uh, I said he was first, at one L um, in Atlanta, and I said I'm going to call him and see if he'll help us. So I called Justin and I asked him and he said, absolutely, Ms. Elliott. And I said, what are you doing anyway? And he said, I'm interning for Sharon Cooper, the chairperson of the Health and Human Services Committee. We were like, are you kidding really? me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, and I've told that story a, hundred, a thousand times. So I still get chills every time oh, I tell I it. Yeah. It was remarkable. So Sharon invited us to her home and we sat there, eight of us on her so- cushy sofas. She's in her 70s. She sat on her brick hearth for three hours. So you hours. got your Republican. Yeah. <laughs> got our Republican. She sat on the brick hearth for three hours and listened to our stories of our children. That's amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. And then she said, okay, we're going to take it forward in this session. That was like November 2013. And we took it forward in in 2014. And it was a crazy, crazy, crazy thing. We made schedules and we all had jobs and we went down and we talked to legislatures and we worked the legislators and we worked the ropes and we testified at subcommittees and we were scared. We told our kids stories and we thought it wasn't going to pass. They told us it would take us four years because like only 16 states in the country had passed this law by then. And Georgia, love Georgia, but we're not usually on the leading edge of this kind of legislation. Yeah. So, um, but it went through and it passed the first year. Oh, that's amazing. It was yeah. amazing. It was bittersweet for a lot of us because we knew it wasn't going to change our story for our kids. But but know. yeah, hopefully it rewrites someone else's story it, for their kids. Rewritten yeah. other people's stories. Exactly. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, and just to kind of dig a little bit deeper into like, so you said it passed in the first session. Did like once it kind of got close to the voting, were y'all worried? Or once you kind of got closer to the finish line, was it kind of like we got a good feeling about this? We were really worried. At, I well, I'm I I was more of a skeptic. Other people were like, oh, it's such a good law, it'll pass, you know. But I mean, we just we're all over. But I was like, oh, crazy. This is not this. It's going to take forever for us to pass this. But it went through the House and it passed, and then it had to go to the Senate. And when it went to the Senate, the senator from Athens actually changed the law. And added something to it, which is a really good thing. And I'll tell you what that was in a minute. But he added that, something to it. Well, now that changed law passed. Senator Kausert changed something and added it. And, and that changed law passed in the Senate. But now it has to go back to the House. But the Senate's the session is only 40 days long. So what happens lots of times is the law bounces back to the House, but you're out of days. And then you have to go all the way to the next year and start over. So that was what our biggest worry was that when it, when it bounce back it was there wasn't going to be time so we were down there just like talking and talking and running to offices and trying to make sure that it was going to get um heard on the floor and it on the 39th day it got called to the floor it was late at night it was like 8 30 at night and we saw the green lights go up and we realized we had just passed the georgia 911 medical amnesty and expanded naloxone access bill in the state of georgia and what year was that 
2014. Okay. And it's just been on the books ever since? It has been. All right. And this would be a great time to kind of dive in deeper to what that actually means for people and yeah. helping saving lives. Yeah. I mean, there's really two main parts to the law. The first part is the uh, don't run, call 911 part. And what that part of the law says is that if you're in the presence of someone that you suspect is overdosing. They don't have to be overdosing. You just have to suspect that they're overdosing. And it doesn't just have to be opioids. It can pretty much be any, anything. anything. And you call 911 and you stay with the victim until help arrives. Neither the caller nor the victim can be arrested, charged, or prosecuted in the state of Georgia for personal use, of qu- personal use quantities of drugs that may be at the scene or for paraphernalia, um, that may be at the scene at the Which time. is what most users fall into. Like, and, and that's why they don't call, because they're afraid they're going to go to jail. Exactly. And, and I mean, and, and to be really honest, a lot of them think he's going to snap out of it. I mean, they're not just being, they're thinking, he'll be okay, he's going to snap out of it. So they, but they don't call. But now they can call without fear of any kind. They can't be violated on parole or on probation or if they have conditions to pretrial release. But it does not cover outstanding warrants. So if somebody has an outstanding warrant for murder, they won't be arrested. They won't be arrested for the drugs, drugs but, they, but they could be they could be violated they, on their warrant. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, Which so, makes sense. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's for personal use quantities of drugs because this group of people who had lost their children, we weren't interested in protecting traffickers. Yeah. So it's anything that's under tra- the trafficking. Well, and I think that helps pass the bill for that other side, the Republicans exactly. that are like anti these just, kind of bills, because you like you said, oh, it's enabling. Well, it's like, well, not really, because these are people with addiction, with problems. Yes. These are not the the pushers. And, and, you know, our big message always was, like, is it really worth arresting a small-time drug user? Is that more important than losing a life? Yeah. I mean, we want the lives to be saved. And and honestly, so many of the legislators just looked at us and said, this is a good, this is a good law. This yeah. is a good law. It, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Like, it's exactly. just it just makes sense if you look at it at its, you know, at the does. base of what it's trying to accomplish. Exactly. So let me tell you quickly, but the part that Senator Kausert added back was to that part of the law. And what he wanted was it to cover underage drinking. So because obviously he's from Athens. Yeah. So he wanted it to be that if you're in the presence of someone that's having a medical emergency. Because you can die from that too. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially these young kids. And these young kids are 18 years old and they're thinking, oh my gosh, if I call... I'm going, I'm, to, I'm going to go to jail and, you know, my parents are going to kill me. Well, I can't and we can't protect you from that. But, <laughs> but, but you can't go to You won't go to jail anymore because if they call 911 and you're in the presence of someone that's having a medical emergency from alcohol, you can call 911 and you're underage. You can't be arrested, charged or prosecuted. Yeah. And, that, and that's just good to know because most people's bad decisions are based off fear. It's so important. And I know that a lot of the schools, including, I think, the University of Georgia have added that in. At least they did at some point to their orientation to let the kids know that. Like, so hey, like. You, yeah. you know, if you do the right thing, because unfortunately in our society, you do get punished for doing the right thing sometimes. Sometimes, exactly. So, so in, it does kind of create that fear that, hey, I, why they might want to wait for them to snap out. Because it's like, well, if they just snap out of it, then nobody has to know about it. It's Exactly. It's like, and then it's know. over and we can just move on and do, do our thing. Yeah, so the second part of the law has to do with naloxone, which mm-hmm. is obviously something that I'm sure you both are very familiar with. Naloxone is a drug that's been around since the 1960s. And <clears throat> prior to our law getting passed, it was on surgical suites of floors, because obviously if anybody's getting any kind of um, opioid, opioid or opiate-based 
Yeah, we get lots of IV opioids. Yes, then you and you see somebody's fall, you know, they're not they're not breathing, they're breathing very shallowly or they're not, you know, whatever. You feel like they have had too much, you keep Narcan usually I think in the Pixis and it's kind of on um And just to be real, order. yeah, and just to be real, there are patients that take their own medicines from their pocketbook and you're given so exactly. like you said, I've so you definitely looked watching, at right? Yeah, you've yeah. definitely talked to a doctor before and been like I I only gave them like 2 milligrams of morphine. It shouldn't have done this and then Yes. They look through the, you know, yes. the pocketbook and there's and 30, 30 Percocet missing, yeah. <laughs> you know, so. So there, it used to be on surgical floors. It would be in the emergency room, obviously. And if you were lucky, it was on an ambulance if you were lucky. But we had people testify for us at the, at the, um, when we were getting the law passed about how their child was overdosing and the people that they were with did the right thing and called 911 despite the potential consequences. And the ambulance arrived and there was no one on, there was no Narcan on the ambulance or this was the worst one. There was Narcan on the ambulance. It was an opiate overdose, but they ha- you had to be a certain level EMT. You had to be to a paramedic or, yeah, ex- exactly. And even though it was there, they couldn't administer it. In both those cases, when the person got to the emergency room, they it was were too, dead. It was too late. Too late. So once the, once the legislators heard this kind of thing, that they really were kind of on board. So what our law said is that, because it was, Narcan wasn't out there in the public you know, people didn't have it. Like, if you went to your doctor and you said, prescribe me some Narcan, they'd be like, what? Naloxone. They'd be like, what? No, we don't prescribe that. If you went to the pharmacist, they couldn't get it for you in the past. But it just they, wasn't in the pharmacies? No, it just wasn't It wasn't in the pharmacy. It wasn't, you know, they didn't have it. But what our law says is that any doctor can prescribe it, any pharmacist can dispense it, and anyone who knows someone at risk of can give it. can administer it without any fear of civil, criminal, or, or professional licensing liability for doing so. Because the reality is, even if they didn't take opioids, it's not going to like harm them. Exactly. And you only have to, sus- again, you only have to suspect that they're overdosing. They don't have to actually be overdosing. Because if you give it and they don't respond at all, then it's like, okay, maybe this isn't an overdose. If, they were having, if they're in a diabetic coma or they're having some other problem, that's not going to be. Yeah, know. but it's not going to harm them either. So that's it's not. Yeah, so that's the reality that, you know, why this should be legal is because it, exactly. just because it was originally intended for professional use only, we've kind of gotten to the point where well, and it, really, it can save lives. So and why if you wouldn't really you think about who's really the first responder? The first responder is the person <laughs> sitting next to them yeah. that sees them overdosing. You know what I mean? The peers are the are really the most. The fir- they're the first ones on the scene. Yeah, to have that to have that in their hands. So our law states that, and then in 2016, a gentleman Dallas Gay from uh, Gainesville had lost his grandson um, to a prescription dose uh, drug overdose. He wanted to changed the law so that it no longer said it even needed a prescription. So while it's not over the counter, there's a standing order in Georgia, which basically says that everyone in Georgia has a prescription. Yeah. So it still remains a prescription drug today, but everybody in Georgia has a prescription. So if somebody needs Narcan or Naloxone, Narcan is the brand name, Naloxone is the um, generic. generic. Um, if somebody wants, all they have to do is walk into a pharmacy and say, I'd like to buy some nar- Naloxone and the pharmacist can dispense it without seeing a prescription or anything. And it is just as an aside, it is covered by most major uh, insurance companies. All you have to pay is a copay. So if you walk into the, into the pharmacy to get it and it's covered uh, in many cases on the Medicaid and Medicare formularies. Um, yeah. So, people, so it's easily accessible and affordable. It is. And um, you know, people, we just, we distribute Narcan um, and we could talk about that in a minute, but we, we distribute Narcan to people that maybe can't get to the drugstore to buy yeah. it. So, and if um, you're willing, can you describe a little bit about your relationship with your son and, you know, yeah. potentially what, 
like happened or yeah of course um because it probably wasn't like he just fell into like this awful crowd no. of human beings you know no, it's not, not at all actually zach was a you know and i know all moms say this but he was a really smart kid he scored over 700 on all three sections of his sats he was um he played sports he was a musician very he played classical piano from the time he was five, picked up the guitar at nine, pretty much never put it down. He loved his guitar probably more than anything. Um, he was popular. He had a lot of friends. He was a great kid, and he was very, very anti-drug. Um, he knew about my background, which I'm a person in long-term recovery, and you know what that means to me is that it's been over 31 years since I've had my last mind-altering or mood-altering substance. Um, my drug of choice was alcohol, and... Um, so he knew that even though he had never seen me drink because I quit drinking when he was a baby, but he knew. And, um, so he knew that he perhaps had a genetic predisposition to some kind of substance use disorder. Um, and when he was 16 years old, he went to a party. He called me from the party quietly, secretly and said, come get me. And I went and got him. He said, the kids were going to go buy some weed and he just wanted to get out of there. He didn't want to be involved. And in November of his of his sophomore year in high school, just a month later, he went to a party. The kids were smoking weed, and he tried it. And three months later, Zach had tried every drug there was to try. I mean, he literally went from zero to 103 months. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes with intelligent, smart kids, like, mm. that's almost the way they go because it's like they finally found something to push down all these thoughts. Like I know for me personally in college, like, you know, I experimented, I tried these different things and sometimes it was just to make the thoughts stop because, you know, being, you know, somebody that thinks a lot and trying to gain knowledge, you just sometimes can't turn it off. And then drugs, I think that was very true of Zach. and also, drugs sometimes can just turn it off for you. I think that was very true of Zach. And he also told me one time, he goes, mom, I just thought I was smarter than opiates. He said, I knew the, what everybody said. He said, but I just thought I was smarter. He said, you know, I had a plan. Like I only used every third day and I only, you know, so, so that he said, that's why I'd never have to go. But so I figured And, it and was this, when he said this, was he like in a recovery period? Yes, he was in a recovery period. So um, he, um, I figured it out really quickly. I mean, we know tons of parents that are like, I didn't even know. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like the day he came home the first time, I was like, what's with those eyes? Yeah. Um, and so... Anyway, the following August, I sent him out to Utah, and he spent his whole junior year in high school in Utah going to in, – in residential treatment, sort of therapeutic boarding school situation. And um, then he turned 18 right before his senior year in high school, and I had no more leverage. I couldn't make him stay there. He wanted to come home. He came home, and, you know, he had had a year then, but he was just – you know, it, it's the same thing that is true, I think, with so many young people. I mean, it's very, very difficult when you're 18 years old – to go to be abstinent mm -hmm. because every car you get into every party you go to every time you're around other kids it's hard to find a group of kids where no one in that group does something does something right and they're always like hey have a beer come on oh come on you'll be fine you know whatever and i don't mean it like peer pressure like forcing you but it's just like that feeling you feel left out yeah yes. you feel left out if you're not a part of that so i definitely can relate to that being you know and i think we were talking earlier being a young boy, especially, you just have no perspective on the big picture. It's just totally you know, agree. I'm invincible. Like yes. I, I can handle this. So, so he gradually picked up again and started using. And and senior year high school was kind of a mess. He went to freshman year college, total disaster. Um, really brilliant kid, and he failed almost everything his freshman year in college. And at the end of that, he came to me and he said, I'm done. I've got to get some help. I want to go. 
um, to the place that a friend of his had gone to in uh, right outside Nashville. And he went there and, um, Zach spent a year and a half in this recovery community. He went through 30 day residential, then through another 30 day sort of three quarter care where he was there during the day. But at night he was back at the sober living. And, um, then he, was in sober living, got a job, you know, all that and lived there for about a year and a half. He relapsed a couple of times, or as we like to say, had, you know, um, uh, he, he had setbacks a couple of times. And, um, then both times, the first time he talked his way right back in the sober living and he's like, Oh, you know, it's just, and he was a binge user. So he just did it for the weekend. And they said, okay, come on back. Second time they were like, no way. So we went back through 30 day back through and ultimately at the um in December of 2010 he caught he came home for christmas and i was very nervous because he always was um triggered in atlanta because there were so many people that he knew there and i was nervous but he did fine and he had met a girl in aa that he really was crazy about she was 18 she had 60 days he had 7 months at that time and anybody that's ever worked any kind of a 12 step program knows that nobody they always recommend don't get involved in the first 12 months of your recovery do not get involved and with anyone and but you know try to tell an 18 year old and a 20 year old that you know yeah. they're not listening to anything you say anyway so they got together and the day he got back to Nashville from Atlanta he and uh this woman uh relapsed together. Um, I found out about it. I went up, I picked him up in Tennessee. And, you know, to be honest with you at that point, I just did not know what to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I should he go to the same place again? You know, I mean, you know what I mean? It was yeah. just so confusing. And my in-laws said, why don't you let him move down here with us? So he moved to Noonan, Georgia, moved in with them, sort of grandparents rules, you know, Church on Sunday, Sunday school after church, get a job, no car, AA meeting every day, get a sponsor, you know? Yeah. And they're not that different from my rules, but maybe a little bit more rigid. Yeah. Um, so well, and almost as a grandchild, you're almost like, all right, this is, like, there's almost a certain level of respect, like, all right, this is grandma and papa's house. Or Exactly. <laughs> and I think he, he definitely did that. He he went along with everything they said, and... um. He was there for about six weeks, and then on the night of April 30th, he came home from work. Um, my father-in-law picked him up. He didn't have a car. He got home about 10.30, talked to my in-laws from 10.30 to 11. They went to bed. At 11.01, he called his AA sponsor, talked to his AA sponsor till 11.31. At 11.32, he called that woman in Tennessee that he was still just really, really liked her a lot and wanted to get in touch with her. She didn't pick up. And at 1133, he called the heroin dealer in Atlanta. And, um, and is that where his, um, addiction led to is eventually it had gone to heroin. So he, um, his, my in-laws had left the keys on the kitchen counter and they picked, he picked up the keys and jumped in the car. And the next morning at nine o'clock, I got a call from my father-in-law. He said, Zach's gone. He's taking the car. We don't know where he is, blah, blah. And I started calling him. I was so mad. I thought he was driving to Tennessee. I was yelling at him, you know, that mm -hmm. bring that car back. Your grandparents yeah. are going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> that whole thing. And um, he didn't, he didn't respond. And then I started texting him. He didn't respond. And finally I sent him a text that I only sent him this when I really, really was desperate. And he always responded. And I just said, Zach, I'm scared. And I got nothing. Yeah. And to be honest, that's when I remember distinctly, I just started praying, please, 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 God, let my son be in jail. Yeah. Please let my son be in jail. And I never thought I would ever be a mother 
that that I would like that that's a thought that would ever come into no, your head never but i knew that was the only other reason why he wouldn't be responding to me and at three o'clock on the um, morning on the afternoon of um, may 1st 2011 uh, my father-in-law called to tell me um that they had found zach's body in the back seat of his grandparents car in the english avenue neighborhood of atlanta that some people call the bluff and uh he had died of a heroin overdose. He was 21. Oh, and I'm sorry to hear that. It's very sad. And like we said before, these, you know, I was a young boy myself. You just, you can't sometimes stop the impulse. You can't, you know. I know he didn't think he was, you know, he, what he thought, I'll tell you this. He left the garage door open. You know why? Because he didn't want that noise twice. Because mm-hmm. he thought. He, he was going to come back. Up. Yeah. I'm going to sneak that car back in, close that garage door. They'll never know. And, you know. And what year was this? This was... 2011. 2011. 11 yeah. years ago, yeah. And this was even before fentanyl was kind of oh, yeah. getting into... Because uh, Mar- Barbara and I have talked about this. It's even more dangerous now because... Oh, it's it's exponentially da- more dangerous now. Yeah. It's it's off the charts now, yeah. really. And so um, just want to go a little bit deeper into your um, Georgia overdose program. Um, what are y'all doing now um, as far as, you know, you talked a little bit about community outreach, getting Narcan to people. Yeah. Where can people find these resources? Um, yeah, so what we do, what, what, what we really, right after the law passed, we thought, oh, okay, great, we've passed the law. Yay, that's the end of this. You know, okay, move on. Now we'll go on. But then we realized it's not enough to pass the law if nobody knows about the law. And sorry, yeah, to go off on a tangent again, that's kind of like free healthcare because it's like free healthcare is great except people aren't signing up for it. Yes, and then exactly. we still have all these uninsured like people in the hospitals. Five so. days after the law passed, we heard about this kid that didn't call 911. And I mean, my heart literally cracked in half. Yeah, because people, yeah. I thought, how can he not have called? Of course, because he didn't know. So then it became our mission to kind of try to educate people in Georgia. And we were trying to collect really small dollar amounts and get some Narcan to distribute when we could and everything. And um, um, so we, we, Lori and I were doing about 100 presentations a year where we would go out to different, like, Sober living facilities, treatment tr- facilities. We didn't really do schools that much because schools weren't very welcoming. But we did um, uh, lots of like church program anywhere that people, really anywhere that anybody invited us, yeah. we would go. We would go anywhere. We didn't care. And we would just tell them about the law and tell them how they could get Narcan. And if we had Narcan, we would distribute it. And then um, a couple years later, we wound up applying for a grant, which that's just another round of us being like, we have no idea what we're doing, but let's try. And we got a really nice grant. So now we have, um, with the funding from DBHDD in Georgia, and it comes down through SAMHSA, we have a really nice grant where we're able to distribute naloxone for free to high-risk individuals. And we define those people as being our active users, people who are in recovery, people who are on some kind of medication-assisted treatment. Um, as you mentioned, they could be taking MATs and also still using mm-hmm. and then be really at high, higher risk almost for overdose. Um, people that are um, uh, in any kind of um, uh have had any kind of abstinence. So if they've been in jail or if they didn't have any money or so their body was clean and now suddenly they're going to start using and that's going to the same amount they did use and that could cause an overdose. They've lost their tolerance. Yeah. They've lost their tolerance. Exactly. Um, and also sex workers is in our high risk group and anyone who has direct regular contact with those people, 
So their roommates, their parents, their children, their anybody that's in regular direct that's anybody that could potentially find them down and save their life. Yeah. So that's our target market. That's who we really try to get our kits out to. People that would just like to have a kit because someday somewhere in my life I may come across someone in the park that's overdosing. We would especially if they have insurance, we would beg them to please go to the pharmacy and use their insurance to buy the kit so that we don't send them a kit and take a kit away from someone that really is actively using it. Because there is limited resources. There's limited resources. So so we try to really focus on those. But to be honest, we don't turn any we don't say no to anyone. Anybody that asks us for a kit, we provide them. Um last year we distributed twenty eight thousand free Narcan kits in the state of Georgia. Lori, my my co founder, has trained a hundred distributors throughout the state. So if we get a call from somebody in Thomasville, Georgia, and it's a panicked mother and she said, My son just got out of rehab and I'm afraid he's going to use today She'll call our distributor in Thomasville, Georgia. They'll meet at a Starbucks or a, as Lori would say, or if it's a really small town, a burger doodle mm-hmm. and yeah. they'll get a, they'll give a kit to them. So, and train them, train the person on how to use it. Um, with COVID, we had to pivot a little bit because obviously people weren't meeting. So we started mailing kits. We mail quite a lot of kits out now. And um, do you have a website or number or both to share? We do. Our website is www.georgia, spelled out, G-E-O-R-G-I-A, overdoseprevention.org. And on that website, you can watch um, an hour-long sort of our our story that I've just told with a training, or you can just watch a 20-minute training of how to use Narcan. You can request a Narcan kit. And also what we always ask people is if you know anyone that has had a reversal using one of our kits to please report that on our website, because the more reversals that we're able to document, obviously the more funding we can get because we're we're able to show that our efforts are really working and saving lives. And I'm guessing this is anonymous, so people don't have to worry about Absolutely like Absolutely anonymous. Yeah. And like, don't I don't want people, my name on there. That we it, don't care know. if people put Mickey Mouse. We yeah. don't care what you put. We What we really care about is just because we have to provide this as part of our, our grant are more the demographic, inf- the demographic mm-hmm. information and um, of the person that was saved. And um, if you're requesting a kit obviously if you want it via mail we have to have your address to send it but and i mean mickey mouse has a lot of pressure he may be down one day he may need saving Who we just knows? don't know and yeah hopefully minnie's got the kit with her yeah i hope so yeah <laughs> well so yeah. to date we know of and you know we always laugh and say we ask people to report reversals but we never know um if we always say that people at the scene of a of a uh, overdose, probably their first thought isn't, oh, let's call Robin and Lori. Yeah. So we know that our numbers are really dramatically underreported, but um, our our partners are the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition. They're our financial partner and they work sort of the in-town area of Atlanta and we work the rest of the state. Um, between them and us uh, to date, we have over 7,000 reported reversals just from our kits that we've distributed. That doesn't include anything to do with paramedics or people that have bought kits at drugstores. That's just from our kits. Yeah. So it's, and I mean, and that's potentially 7,000 lives saved right 7, there. 7,000 lives saved and 7,000 mothers who aren't heartbroken. That's amazing. It 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 really, as I said earlier, it, it makes me get up every day. Yeah. And I mean... You know, and as tragic and sad as your story, personal story is, you know, it's always, like you said, being able to give back and help save another mother from this tragedy. And, you know, I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. And I'm very sad that you lost your son. But 
you, you know, I don't think God would have put you through this or the universe or whatever if it wasn't meant to you make a big difference. And you already have. Thank you so much. One time I was sitting at a, a, a clinic and there was a kid there. He was really new to recovery, like five days. And I was telling the story and I said, I really, I said, I knew when I said about the law passed, I said, I knew it wasn't going to change Zach's story. And he said, it did change Zach's story. And I mean, that just touched my heart so much because I was like, you're right. I never thought of it that way. It changed my story, but it also has changed Zach's story. Yeah. So it made me really happy, you know? That's a, yeah, that's an amazing uh, perspective. It and it's, it's, and it's definitely a true perspective. Yeah. So, um, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap this up? I really appreciate you being on the show and I'm so happy to be here. Um, I can't think of anything. If anybody wants to write to us, they can write to us at info at georgiaoverdosprevention.org. The easiest way to get in touch with us is on the website. And, you know, we're volunteers, so we do the very best we can to try to get back to people as quickly as we can, usually same day. Um, but, yeah, I'm so happy to be here just to spread the word. And if anybody needs us, you know. Yeah, and I think can. that's usually the biggest challenge in anything is just getting the word out and uh, letting people know that this is here available. And uh, and we really look at the people that we educate as being our ambassadors. Mm-hmm. So now that anybody that's listening to this podcast, we look at you to be our ambassador. Go tell some people. Yeah. Because that's the only way that the, the word gets spread is through the ripple effect. So. Exactly, yeah. You yeah. tell two people, they tell two people. Exactly. exactly and yeah. it keeps multiplying. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, thanks again for everyone listening to another episode of Scrubs in the Trenches and stay tuned till next time. Everyone have a great day.